Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 3, verse 20? It'll just be one verse there, Romans 3, 20. That can be found on page 1,197, as well as Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. That can be found on page 1,249. We'll also be reading a summary of what God's Word teaches us of works and faith. That can be found in Lord's Day 24, page 225 of your Forms and Prayers book. Before we read, let's ask for God's blessing. Lord God, we come before you and pray for the insight, the revelation of your Word that you would open our hearts to receive it, that you would be with what is said, that what would be spoken would be true, that if anything that is said would be untrue, it would fall to the ground, it would be unheeded, but that what would be true would be heard by us as what it really is, your true word. Speak to us then, may we understand in this, we have no confidence in ourselves, no confidence in our works, but all in you. We ask this in your name, amen. So just the one verse from Romans 3, Romans 3.20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Once more, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now if you would turn to Philippians 3. Verses 1 through 11, here we read of Paul, what Paul could possibly have boasted in, in his works, in in law, and what he had in standing, and yet did not. Romans 3, 1 through 11, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law of Pharisee, As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Sends these passages and reading from God's word, and now we will read what God's Word teaches us as summarized in the Heidelberg Catechism, thinking of here works and what they accomplish. Lord's Day 24 asks, begins with this question, Why can't our good works be our righteousness before God, or at least a part 
of our righteousness. Because the righteousness which can pass God's judgment must be entirely perfect and must in every way measure up to the divine law. But even our best works in this life are all imperfect and stained with sin. How can our good works be said to merit nothing when God promises to reward them in this life and the next? This reward is not merited, it is a gift of grace. But doesn't this teaching make people indifferent and wicked? No, it is impossible for those grafted into Christ by true faith not to produce fruits of gratitude. There we read the summary of God's word and what it teaches. And people of God, how are we to understand this? How are we to understand our works? That's what we're thinking of this evening. What are our works? What do they do before God? Are they even a part of our righteousness before God, as the Catechism asks? I think the best way to summarize this Lord's Day is to say it means Christ alone. If you had to summarize it, it is Christ alone. And though this Lord's Day is talking about our works and what we can and can't merit, the whole point is to show us that at the end of the day, at the end of our works, it is still Christ alone. It's him in who we stand. It's him and through him that we have our righteousness. What's your standing before God on Judgment Day? If you were, and someday this may very well be you in this situation, you're laying on your deathbed. You're aware that death approaches. Well, how will you approach that day? How will you approach this judgment if someone were to come to you and say, Do you know where you're going? Are you assured of your destination? Are you assured of your faith? Some might say, Yes. Yes, I am. And and you probe and you ask, Why? Why? Where's your assurance? Where's that that peace and, and calm coming from? And if one was to say this very common response when asked, do you know where you're going? Yes. Why? Because I lived a good life. Because I did my best. Because I tried to love, I tried to obey God's law as best as I could. Is that how we face that day and that question? It's rather shaky. It's amazing how many place their confidence and their hope in their righteousness or even in part of their righteousness to bet their eternal destiny. And I tried. I did my best. That's not good enough in most walks of life. We fail in so many ways, even if we do our best. We could do our best to try to to build a a beautiful piece of furniture, but we don't have the tools nor the skills, and we fail, and yet we tried. We did our best. We wouldn't even do that, right? If you were looking for a dresser and had no woodworking skill, you wouldn't say, I'm going to build this and expect to have the outcome be a wonderful piece. And yet... They are betting their life on that very thing. I'm trying my best at something they have no skill in, no ability to perform. And is that good enough before God? Or is the dying saint far more assured and has a far sweeter answer to that question, where do you know, how do you know where you're going, where are you going? I have assurance because I'm only standing on Christ. 
I'm only standing in him. And we approach judgment day not to bring before God a whole heap of a basket of worthless works. And rather we approach God cloaked in Jesus Christ. One gives great assurance that's there for our taking. One has no reason to boast. And the other tries to boast and is there to fail. Reformed theology is often criticized for being proud for its views, proud for its view of election. You may have heard it characterized this way. You are those people who believe that that God just chooses a few, he elects these few, and, and it doesn't matter what happens next, you're just saved. Once saved, always saved. Doesn't matter what you do. You, you, you don't take any account of good works or righteousness. It doesn't matter to you. That's often the way it's, it's critiqued and characterized, though not true. And though I'm going to leave to the side for, for just a minute the fact that that is a false characterization, you could also respond in an alternative way and, 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 and put it back on those and say, to look for any other answer for salvation shows profound ignorance or arrogance. To put yourself forward as being able to either muster up enough or even part of enough to save you, part of a right standing before God, means you're a fool and proud. And that's the truth. It isn't arrogance to say we have no ability to save ourselves, no capacity to do a perfect work, no way to please God for our salvation. That's pure humility. That's pure gospel. But it is proud to come before God again on that judgment day and say, here, here's my half, here's my portion. I did this. That's arrogant. It's inadequate. We see that, as the Catechism says in our first point, it's not even a part. You could, you could think of someone even asking that question. Is it even a part? Is our, is our good works even a part of our righteousness? Surely. The Catechism asks it, and that's a question that's been on our own lips. Surely what we do has at least some part of our acceptance before God. And if we don't actually ask it or think it, we live that way. Surely that I am not good enough to come before the Lord. Surely I can't be saved unless I do this. I'm too wicked to come before the Lord, and so I'm going to do these things, and now I'll be accepted. We always face that. That dilemma, that danger. We can profess Christ and profess faith and righteousness in Christ alone and yet live too often where we take that own question on our own lips. Is our, is our righteousness a part of it? If it's not, what does that mean? You see, living as if your righteousness and your works contribute to your salvation or your final security in heaven is based on it in part is, as I said, either arrogant and results in pride or it also results in incredible grief and doubt of assurance. Because after all, who is truly believing that they are righteous enough? And who would not shudder facing the judgment of God and think, well, I, I had better done at least a good part of what I was supposed to? You see, those who believe this fail to understand how good a good work truly is. They fail to understand how truly sinful we are. What, what makes a good work? 
How good must a good work be? And I think as we think of this, we'll, we'll realize we have a really warped understanding of, of good and even how what we do could be classified in that way. And I'll just give some examples. First, we look at Paul. That's why we read from Philippians. Here's that question. Could he not have said that his righteousness was a part of his salvation in Christ? That his law-keeping did something to ingratiate himself with God or to keep him safe in the covenant? And Paul goes through great lengths to say, Listen, here's my pedigree of the flesh and of law-keeping. And from man's standards, it's flawless. But from God's standards, he says it's rubbish doesn't count for anything. And all Paul wants to do is abandon that way of thinking and say, it's all in Christ, that I would be found in him and him alone, and if I'm found anywhere else, you're lost. His law-keeping did not matter for his salvation. And ours does not as well. It can't. It can't even be a part, because what makes good works good? That's what the Catechism says. That's how it's answering it. The righteousness which can pass God's judgment must be entirely perfect and must in every way measure up to the divine law. What does this mean? You know, boys and girls, when you're dishing out the desserts and your parents give you the desserts to go bring, and maybe it's a a serving of ice cream or pieces of cake, and and you bring it out, and and you're supposed to to pass along to your siblings, and you look at the sizes, right? Well, I want the bigger piece is what you think. But you think to yourself, I'm going to be really good. I'm going to give my sibling the bigger piece. And that's great. You should do that. We could even call that a good work. But... What if, and and this might be crazy to think, what if you also did it because you wanted to look better than them? What if you also gave them that bigger piece of cake or bigger bowl of ice cream because you were hoping that someone would see it and think, wow, that's really special, that's good, and praise you for it? Well, it means that it wasn't a perfectly good work. It means that before God... There was still sin in it. It wasn't fully right. And we have this. We may as adults think we're far better. I don't think we are. I think we do the same thing in our own way. What if we are are thinking, and this is sort of the Ananias and Sapphira deal, I'm going to give money to the church. Here comes the bowl, here comes the plate. And are we giving solely because it's our true desire to give? Or or is there also, in the back of our minds, even if it's just a tinge of it, I don't want other people to see me not put something in the plate. I don't want to establish that pattern. And, And so, to save face, we'll add some to the plate. Giving is great, right? But it's a tainted good work, isn't it? It means it doesn't pass God's muster means you'd be bringing God on Judgment Day a whole heap of these type of things. Listen, God, look at my righteousness. Here's what I offer. And everything, every trinket you pull out is damaged. And God, as as he's judging these according to the strict judgment of the laws, is throwing them away and saying, damaged, tainted, flawed. Those are 
even our good works. We, we come to worship. Maybe we truly desire to come to worship, but there's also in there that tinge of it's just out of habit or it's just because we know we should and we don't actually want to be here. And we all face that. It's good to worship, but, but it's also tainted, right? There's flaws in our desires. Or we want to, to serve God, we want to live a thankful life, we want to live a life of rejoicing, and that's wonderful, and it may even be that we have true godly desires for that, and yet mixed in with those desires as well is an idol. And that idol is, maybe if I'm thankful, maybe if I rejoice, maybe I can use God to get to my comfort, which is really my goal, and not God at all. Maybe if I do these things, I'll get what I want, I'll, I'll actually accomplish this idol See, it's tainted, and we all know that. What, what, what goes into a good work? Perfect law-keeping, perfect motivations, precision to God's law. This means not only do you grasp what God's law says, you also have the wisdom to apply it perfectly in every situation, and your motivations have no self-service, no pride, no arrogance. There's nothing broken about it, nothing tainted. Perfect worship perfect obedience. Sometimes we do good because it's our turn. It's our turn to do good. Someone's been doing this for me, I'll do it for them. I'll put them first because they've been putting me first most of the time. It's my turn. For all of these things, absolutely give the bigger piece of cake. Come to worship. Put money in the plate. Seek to live rejoicing. Seek to live thankful. Do good and put others first, but understand everything we would offer is tainted. And that let that then turn you to complete astonishment at what Jesus did, at what his law-keeping was, because it was that perfect law-keeping. It was perfect righteousness. He never exercised power or a miracle for his own interests that were wrong. He never spoke a word even to his enemies that was out of anger, that was out of arrogance or pride. He never failed to show love to anyone, to God, the Father, or to those his neighbor. He did it all perfectly. And, and as you start framing it that way, what you see is thinking our righteousness could even be a part of our standing before God so devalues what Christ has done so diminishes the goodness of his work because what passes God's muster, his judgment, is what Christ offers. And, and, and can we think as we take our feeble efforts and say, here, put that on par with Christ or, or let that fill in what's lacking. That's ridiculous. Our best work ever in this life if it were to be put with Christ, would diminish the whole offering to God because of the taint of our sin. And why would we want to do that anyways? When the Bible talks about how we stand on Christ and Christ alone, we've never managed to muster up just one good work to put before God, but Jesus did enough for the whole world. And that's what's amazing. So good work must be free from sinful motivations, but it also must be done for the right motivations in keeping with God's word in every way. 
So we fail to see how good good works must be. We also fail to see how sinful we are. We've already been talking about it in that way. The Catechism says even our best works in this life are all imperfect and stained with sin. The best of our efforts are sinful, even as new creatures in Christ. Even as new creatures in Christ, we are still incapable of performing a perfectly good work. Now, I want to stop there and clarify something. God accepts our good works and looks upon them with grace and mercy. As the Catechism is talking here and, and talking about how we are still stained with sin even in our works, don't make the mistake of thinking that God views his saints and all their works with disgust. As if he sees them and he goes, get them away. The Catechism is describing this, and even Paul describes it in Philippians and other places in God's word, describes our works in that way when it's, when it's being brought forth as standing for our salvation. That's when we see the taint. That's when we see how unacceptable they are. But that isn't the way God views the works of his saints. He is pleased by the works of his saints. He looks upon them with grace. He looks upon them with favor. He lifts up his countenance upon them and is truly pleased by it. And so don't be discouraged either in doing these good works. Don't tell yourself, well then, as we'll get to later, there's no point in obeying. No, there is. It does please the Lord. Jesus, or I should say God the Father and Jesus throughout the, the scriptures, would look upon some of the saints and, and call them even blameless. And this didn't mean that they had no sin. It means he was pleased with them, that they were righteous, that they were seeking to obey the Lord. Ephesians 11 is that hall of faith, talking about the saints of the Old Testament who stood upon faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. Their commendation, that God was pleased with it and pleased with them. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's, let's never downplay the fact that God is pleased by our good works. He doesn't look upon them with disgust, but as a means for standing on salvation, they are utterly useless. That's where they're stained with sin. That's where we understand they have no, no capacity to produce that standing before God, and yet our feeble, sin-tainted efforts... God is pleased with in the sanctification of his saints as they seek to obey. The Westminster Confession of Faith says it well in chapter 16.6. It says this, Notwithstanding the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works also are accepted in him, not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that he, looking upon them in his Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. Puts it very well, the grace of our God to, to look upon our imperfections, our feeble good works, and yet accept them in Christ and through Christ. But this then leads to the, the natural follow-up question, if it's, if our righteousness is not our standing, if it's not even part of it, why does God reward it? 
That's where the catechism goes. That's our second point. But what about rewards? Doesn't God promise to reward good works in this life and the next? And we confess that. We affirm that there will truly be greater degrees of blessing in heaven and greater degrees of punishment in hell. God is just and he punishes or he blesses with that justice and righteous standard. We confess that. So what does that mean then? Does it mean then that our works are meriting something? That, that by doing them we're being owed a good work or the grace of it? The Catechism answers it simply. This reward is not merited. It is a gift of grace. God has prepared these works for us. So yes, he does bless them. Yes, he does reward them. But not because it is something we've earned in ourselves, but rather something he's gifted to us. He didn't have to. And yet he does. Our feeble efforts don't warrant it. And yet he gives good good gifts. He gives rewards. We couldn't do them without him. He must be the one guiding us. Think of it this way. A mother might write a card and take her young child's hand who can't write or spell and, and write the name of the card, write their name on it as if it was signed by them. This is a good illustration of what our works are like. It's God's hand, it's the mother's hand over the child's that's actually writing the signature, but he's doing it, he's, he's gifting it to them. Augustine once said this, Give what you command and command what you will. Give what you command and command what you will. What he was saying by that statement is that God would do in us what he commands, for we are incapable of doing this. Philippians 2, 12-13 says this, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Is that nonsensical? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works it in you. Does, does it contradict? That's why I like that illustration. It's, it's imperfect. You'll find flaws in it. But I like the illustration there because it really is like that mother who is even telling the child, let's write our name. Write your name. Even commanding it, write it, do it, and taking the hand and doing it. You see, the capacity for doing good is because God's working it, but the command should still be there. This doesn't make us purely puppets. It doesn't mean as if we are completely outside of choosing to do it by God's grace. And again, it's a gift of grace. We choose to do good. We desire to do it. But even that is a gift. This is how good works are done. And so the merit that comes from them isn't something that we can claim as our own. They're gifts of grace. God does not reward us for doing these things. He doesn't need to. There's a parable in Luke 17, verses 7 through 10. I'm not going to read it, but the parable amounts to this. Servants go out in the field. The slaves go out and work. They come home. They do their bidding. They do what's required of them. And what is the servant's response then to the praise of his master? Verse 10 of it says, So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. You see, obeying God's law is what we were created to do. God doesn't need to reward us for that. 
It's our expectation. It's what we should do, though fail to. But by God's grace, he does reward. And he rewards bountifully our feeble efforts. Even in this life, you experience that. Just give one example. By obeying God's law, by, by doing good, by loving your neighbor, by being humble, by listening to others when they talk, by showing concern and care, by turning away hard, rough answers with soft answers of love, you will likely, very likely, be greatly thought of by the world. You will likely be those to have many friends. You will be likely those to be well thought of, as you well should be. That's a blessing. It's a direct blessing that comes from obedience to God, but but these works that you're doing were his performance in you, and so you thank him for them even as you experience the blessings now and the blessings yet to come. But if our works don't contribute in any way, we still are left with that nagging question, okay? They don't contribute. They're gifts of grace. So what do we say to the charge? Why obey? That's the last question and answer that the Catechism says in this Lord's Day. But doesn't this teaching make people indifferent and wicked? Would that not be the natural conclusion? It doesn't matter, right? Works don't matter. That's the critique. They do matter. They show true faith. That's, that's the point. It's impossible, as the Catechism says, for one grafted into Christ not to produce good works, not to produce fruit. If you don't produce fruit, you are not grafted into Christ. If you are grafted into Christ, you produce fruit. It's just that simple. Because we are in Christ, we do good. That's why this teaching doesn't make us indifferent and wicked, because we've been transformed, and we have newness of life in us. You see, the flaws to that argument and that critique are, are plain. We can see three of them. Here's three flaws to that statement that we are those who don't believe that good works are, are necessary or, or that we downplay good works. First, there's no other alternative, as we've discussed already. We can't do good. The good is too good for us. And so, however else you want to go after that argument, that's the fact. We can't do it. Second, this misses the clear teaching of Scripture that we don't do good to be saved, but that we do good because we are saved. You don't do good to be saved. You do good because you are saved. That was Romans 3.20. It showed us, For by works of the law, no human, human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. We can't do it. But once we are saved, now we do good works. But you see what must come first? Salvation. How then? How then can salvation be merited by our works when it takes salvation for us even to perform imperfect works? We need Christ's Spirit in us to do good. Salvation then must not be of works, else we could boast. And third and finally, this argument diminishes just how pure Christian good works should be. Here's what I mean. It, it puts an impossible standard in front of you. As if 
we could pursue salvation off of our own works and not then fall because of wrong motivations. The true motivation of law-keeping is because you love God and you honor him. You desire him. And that is why you obey. Anything less than that is lacking. We are out of our minds if we think that we can pursue our own salvation and not see that tainted, where our good works are no longer being done because we just love God, but rather they're being done solely so that we can save ourselves. Because that's what would happen. Here, I could get at it this way. Is it, is it more loving to your friend? Is it, is it a better motivation to, to ask to hang out with a friend because you like them, you want to be in their presence, you desire their companionship, you truly appreciate them, and so you, you seek them out? Which is a more pure motivation, that, or you're hoping to get something from them, and so you invite them over? Really, all you're hoping is to be to use them, to gain something. Well, obviously, we know that the more pure motivation was that you just desired to be with them. Whereas the other one, you're using them. You see, we are so sinful that we can't do and perform that without that creeping in, where in essence, we would end up using God. I'll do this and you give me salvation, and that's our only motivation. That's what would happen. It would take Christ and him alone. It takes him to be grafted into him and bear fruit. That's what Luke six forty three and following says, For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked up from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of his heart his mouth speaks. How do we understand good works? Here's the answer. It doesn't contribute to our salvation, not even in part. It doesn't merit rewards their gifts of grace. And the good works we performed are the direct result because we are that branch grafted into the vine. And by that mere fact, we cannot help but produce those works because Jesus' spirit and life flows through us. And so fruit is produced. It's all of Christ and him alone. Don't approach Judgment Day, don't approach your deathbed with a do-it-yourself mentality. If you were to keep a list of every good work you think you've done throughout your life, it would seem like quite a list, wouldn't it? It would seem pages and pages long. That would be as valuable as taking a bunch of tickets or arcade tokens and bringing it to a bank and expecting to cash in. For bringing a bunch of Monopoly money and bringing it to a bank and say, here, give me this money, Exchange it. As, as many pages as we would want to throw at God of our good works, the columns and pages wouldn't matter. You need only and can have only one name in your column for salvation, and it's Christ. And when his name's in your column, you have access to the whole bank already. 
That's how we understand good works, the good works of Christ in us. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, you are worthy, worthy to receive praise, for you are the only one who showed a worthy obedience, one who merited something from God, one who who gained a reward. You did this through your perfect law-keeping, perfect in every respect. And Father, we don't come before you in arrogance or ignorance. Rather, we come before you in humility to say, we have nothing to offer. We come at your, at your behest and with your name on our lips. And you and your work are our assurance. But we also then come with a newness of heart and life. And we pray, Lord, increase within us the amount of good works. Gift to us a greater measure of good works, for it is you who has prepared them beforehand, and we were saved even to perform them. And so, Lord, bring a bountiful harvest and fruit from us grafted into Christ. We pray in his name.